Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I am Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Philip Paris. Philip is the president of the Showmen's Guild of Great Britain, the locally and nationally recognised negotiating body for national showmen. Philip, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you with us um, on the air on this fine day. Yes, it's nice to. I'm here. Yeah, likewise, it's uh, nice to uh, have you um, on the uh, the programme, uh, Philip, uh, for sure. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership. So if we just take a look at that word leader in isolation, first and foremost, what does that word mean to you and how does it resonate? Well, uh, my application as the National President of the Showman's Guild, uh, which I've been involved with for, for a great many years, I've... Um, spent quite a lot of time with previous presidents and uh, taken a lot of uh, lead from their way of uh, running things. Um, Certainly, uh, speaking about our application, our members are certainly looking for leadership, particularly in uh, these troubled times. Um, So it's it's pulling things together and uh, getting everyone working in the same direction. That would be my... Uh, take on it. Mm, exactly right. And that unity is no more um, important than it is now, of course, with the emergence of uh, COVID-19. Um, if we focus on um, your leadership style, Philip, and how you've had to um, adapt to uh, meet this uh, current crisis, um, how has it affected uh, yourselves personally at the Guild? Well, personally, um, although I am president of the Showman's Guild, I am a, a, an active uh, travelling showman. I'm in the travelling funfair business, as was my father and grandfather before me. Um this time of year, as you can imagine, we've just had the bank holiday weekend. Uh, we, we should be able to have reasonably good weather. We should be out there uh, earning some money. And at the moment, we've got thousands of people uh, basically unemployed at the present time. Uh, and um, also thousands of pieces of equipment, which are, you know, the, the combined uh, uh, value of it is well into the hundreds of millions, I would say. So, um, as uh, having a, a terrible effect on us at the moment. It certainly seems as if the industry is really having to weather a, a blow at the moment. And you mentioned, of course, um, earlier on, um, Philip, um, in terms of your personal inspirations, you drew a lot from people uh, within the Guild, previous presidents that you'd worked with. But are there any individuals mm-hmm. who really stick out that have really been a profound influence um, on you and have affected your leadership style? Yes, well... It- before becoming national president, um, uh, we have 10 different sections of the Showman's Guild, and I've been a member of the Scottish section since I was 18, and I'm now 60, coming up 61. Um, so I served for 10 years uh, as the chairman of the Scottish section, and uh, we have general meetings in November. So during that time and the other years I served on that committee, we had um, you know various national presidents uh, one that would stick out in my mind would be a gentleman called Anthony Harris. He's, he's actually now a, a councillor in the Midlands. Um, he has been for, for several years. He runs uh, Pat Collins Funfair as a very large outfit. And I found him at the time to be very inspirational. Uh, another gentleman, is a more recent past president, is called David Wallace, who's from Lancashire. And um, he's actually 
one of the world's most travelled showmen. He's actually opened as far afield as uh, the island of Mauritius. Um, he's opened in uh, South Africa, various other <laughs> far-flung corners of the globe, and he still travels about. He's he's uh, well into his seventies now, and he still travels about with a large funhouse type attraction. So uh, that that would be two that certainly spring to mind. Mm, two um, fantastic examples um, there in um, their own uh, writer from the sounds of it as well, uh, Philip. And um, I think it's important to recognise um, such individuals who are close to home as leaders because when we often think of leadership, we associate it with celebrity, don't we? We associate it with politics and maybe even with sports personalities as well. And quite often we do lose sight of recognition for those who are close to us, such as mentors, such as colleagues, such as even parents, relatives, family, and maybe they don't get the recognition that they deserve. And do you think that we really do celebrate their achievements enough? Yes, certainly. Uh, and our speaking about my own life and uh, how I earn my living, uh, we're a, a community of people, as you can imagine, as well as a business. It's a sort of way of life. And it's full of characters, uh, a lot of the older ones, you, obviously, you lose as time goes on. But there's always new characters coming up. People that, uh, no matter what the situation, you know, quite often we're in the middle of a muddy field, trying to get pulled out with vehicles and with tractors, and uh, having earned no money due to the bad weather and things like that. There's always people about that'll have a laugh, uh, put things in perspective. You know, that'll, the sun will be shining tomorrow. Uh, so yes, I would say that. Uh, there's there's, uh, there's plenty of, and family obviously there's always family members who are inspirational uh, I, I think I think that's absolutely right. And um, I think given the um, the way of life in the uh, the Showman's Guild as well and the interaction that you have to have with um, such a variety of different personalities, I think there comes a certain degree of almost people uh, management there to just manage relationships and keep everything um, amiable. That's also an important um, aspect of leadership, isn't it? Being adaptable in that way. Yes, yes it is. And the, our, our organisation, the Showman's Guild, plays a, a large part in that. Um, we, we resolve disputes among our membership because we have a, a three-tier sort of uh, disciplinary uh, uh, system and uh, without going into the, the finer details of it, quite often things are sorted out amicably in, in that process rather than, you know, taking things into to legal disputes or uh, sort of other unpleasant <laughs> things that can happen. Uh, we, we, we tend to to be a, a sort of go-to where people have sort of uh, disputes. I don't mean family disputes, but uh, disputes, uh, business disputes about, uh, you know, it might be the, the allocated plot on a particular fair, uh, things like that. So we're, we're very proud of our, our history in uh, resolving these uh, situations. I'm certainly with you on uh, that um, perspective, uh, Philip, and I can see, of course, um, the merit and uh, the work that the uh, the Guild does for sure. Um, but if we think about maybe uh, the future now, um, it, based upon the experience that you've had, not just, of course, in business, but also with uh, the Guild, if you were to give some advice to somebody who was perhaps about to embark um, on their first leadership role, what sort of advice would you give them? Yeah, I, I would think um, everyone has put, likes to put their own spin on things. But um, sometimes change is not always for the better. I think that you have to, first of all, have a look at what's gone on before you, you take place. 
you take uh, office and uh, if there are things that, that can be changed for the better then I would recommend you know having a go for it but not always just for the sake of, of uh, making changes that would be my advice very sound advice indeed and just out of interest Philip if you did have the opportunity to perhaps go back 10-15 uh, years or so is there anything that you do differently going forward or would you just embrace the journey that you've been on as that learning experience that you've had already um, well not, not in I don't think there's anything I'd do differently sort of in a, a leadership uh, thing because I, I, I was very proud to have done my 10 years as the, the local chairman if you want to put it that way and um, the the other part of it is an election. So I've actually tried three times before being elected, and that there's a you do three years as president, so there's a three year gap each time. Um, so you know I didn't have much um, much chance. I could have, I could have campaigned a bit more or whatever, but um, I, I'm quite happy with uh, the way things have gone in that respect. That's great. And um, if we do, of course, um, now move focused from the past onto the future, as in the long term future, as we begin to emerge from this uh, COVID-19 situation in the next year, yeah. hopefully, uh, what do you envision that yeah. time holding for yourself and for the uh, the Showman's Guild? Well, I would like to think that we'll bring a bit of happiness uh, to the country, which is sadly lacking at the moment. Although people, everyone's trying to do their best. Uh, we do recognise that due to the manner of our business, we would come under, uh, you know, large gatherings and we're likely to be at the near the end of the list on things that are allowed to operate, you know, similar to music festivals and such like. But um, if and when we are, we will be cooperating with the local authorities. We do ask that the local authorities don't um, take a, a sort of, there's some that are cancelling things well into the, the future at the moment. My advice to them would be wait and see what the government advice is before cancelling everything because if there is a possibility of us um, being open sooner, then obviously we'd, we'd like to, to do that, not just from a, a business point of view, but also for the benefit of the public who will be looking for a, a sort of escape from the uh, humdrum that they've been having with the, <laughs> the lockdown. So uh, during the Second World War, uh, which is about, the, I suppose, the nearest comparable thing to what's happening just now, some fun fairs did, did open, you know, and certainly uh, it was a sort of boom time, time afterwards for the, the British fairgrounds because people were able to let their hair down and the uh, fun fairs were certainly encouraged. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think it's going to be changing times um, in the future uh, for sure, Philip. And um, when we do start to see things um, opening up again, hopefully in the uh, the near future, um, once we begin to emerge from this situation, given how informative it's been having you on the programme today, I think it'd be fantastic to perhaps catch up and have you back on just to discuss how things um, have developed, um, because it's been a real pleasure having you on the programme and also really um, insightful experience for sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to take part in anything, uh, anything in the future. Uh, to let you know how we get on and it's certainly been a pleasure to put my point of view and speak a little bit on behalf of my fellow showmen and it always is um, a pleasure of course to hear the voices of uh, different industries um, as well uh, do take care Philip and do stay safe with everything still going on I really enjoyed this discussion okay thank you very much 
That was Philip Paris, the president of the Showman's Guild of Great Britain. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to my colleague Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians in his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. The name of his constituency will now stay with him forever, as he was anointed in August 2015 Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough when he was first elevated to the House of Lords. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him, and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. 
commerce, and I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. 
hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually Uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. 
So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up 
uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. 
I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, 
led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's 
major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.